Designing for Data Center Migration and Application Mobility with Malcolm Budin, Part 1, Episode 25. Hey friends, nerds, and geeks alike. It's Zig here, and we are back. I can't believe it's been well over a month. Uh, time has flown and it's it really comes down to just life happening um, and, and rolling with the punches. Uh, we really went through a lot the last month and a half between family being sick, uh, Disney vacation, family being sick again, and then packing up our house, selling our house, and moving. And, and really uh, just a bunch of stuff going on and a bunch of stress. So uh, sorry about the delay. Uh, but we are getting back to things. Uh, you know, today is going to be our 25th episode. Our goal was 26 episodes in one year, and we're on episode 25. And we got a few more weeks um, until we hit our anniversary, our one-year anniversary. So we're definitely making progress here. So today, for our 25th episode, uh, we have a guest expert show. So I'm I'm pretty stoked. Um, but I am jumping ahead, like always, right? Um, so let me do my little intro. As always, this is the ZigBits Network Design Podcast, where Zigabytes are faster than gigabytes, and we strive to provide real-world context around technology, and I am your host. So today, we're going to have my good friend Malcolm Budin on the show, excuse me. Uh, Malcolm's from the UK, and he joined me in January this year for a discussion around designing for data center migrations and application mobility. Uh, we talk about a lot of different concepts, uh, perspectives, and items really just to keep in mind when you're going through an event like this, when you, your organization or company are going through an event like this. And, uh, and honestly, today's the first part of that discussion. Uh, so I would say sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. Hey, Malcolm Boonen. Um, I, I uh, really appreciate you taking some time today. How are you doing? I'm I'm good, man. Good, good to speak to you, and thanks for inviting me on the show. Yeah, yeah, anytime. Pleasure to be here. It's um, it's amazing. You know, we we did a lot together over the last couple of years, and um, I thought of you when I started the podcast, and I was looking for any reason to get you onto the show. So I'm really excited that you know here it is. We get you on the show, and we can actually get into some technology um, that that we both want to talk about. So. All good. Well, try and live up to the hype, mate. Oh, try and live up to the hype. <laughs> well, um, well, for our listeners, um, let's just jump right into some a uh, little background about you, if you don't mind. Can you tell uh, our, our followers, our listeners, a little bit about yourself? Sure. So, <clears throat> for anybody who doesn't know me, um, I'm Malcolm Budin. Uh, I'm located in Scotland, in Edinburgh, in the UK. Um, currently operating as a freelance network consultant and architect. Uh, across various customers globally, actually, um, within the UK and uh, further afield. Um, <clears throat> my background is I've got a degree in network computing way back in 2003 um, and worked in IT since then. Um, so in the last eight or nine years, I've worked more focused on the, you know, the, the, the Cisco partner managed service provider, ISP space, and various different roles. Um, so that's sort of since around 2009. Um, and, you know, anything from network engineer, consultant, architect, in the last five or six years or so, um, predominantly worked in uh, customer-facing design roles. So 
high level design, low level design, uh, pre sales, escalations, um, etc. Mainly for uh, VARs and ISPs. Um, and prior to that, uh, I worked at a enterprise construction company for six years uh, between around 2003 and 2009. So. That was really where uh, my first job in IT, where I started um, on the IT service desk, uh, help desk. It was before ITIL had existed, which makes me feel old. But, um, <laughs> oh, you're not old. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, so it was IT help desk, which evolved into service desk as we know it now. Um, and then I'd done a couple of years as a field engineer um, installing uh, IT uh, setups and networks and PCs, etc., and building sites. Uh, so construction sites, we call them building sites in the UK, but construction sites, I guess, for the US audience, etc. So I'm intrigued already. So, I mean, uh, how many building sites were there at a given time? So, in that organisation, they were one of the, the. They were actually a, a construction company, so they weren't. They weren't just. They, they had a few different things that they'd done. They um, they, they had a residential house building uh, division. Um, they had a commercial uh, construction division. So the, the, the residential division obviously speaks for itself. They built houses. So that was, the, that was you know, a, a very large part of the business. And there was around about uh, 250 uh, like just residential house building sites um, I don't know how many houses were on per site, but it was in, in you know, in the hundreds and multi-year uh, projects to deliver uh, new homes, um, and that was that was like a sort of a key um, aspect. So connectivity, when you think when you start getting into that from a from a design perspective, <clears throat> um, you, you know, you've got challenges around getting connectivity into site cabins. So the site starts up. Uh, the, you have to, you, you typically have 250 locations, but each location would have uh, a site office, which would be the construction site manager's office, uh, typically port of cabins. Wow. Um, and then you would have the sales office, which would start off in a port of cabin, but maybe, you know, anything from one, well, maybe, maybe two to six weeks up to maybe 12 weeks. Uh, the sales presence would be in a cabin until like the show house or the show home was built and then it would be re relocated. So obviously part of that process was delivering ADSL lines into the site and the sales offices. And if either the site, the site, the construction site manager's cabin had to move to another location on a site because they start, needed to start building the next phase of homes, it would be a complete uh, cease and reprovide of like WAN services on the site. So you would need to deliver the ADSL or whatever. And the same would go for like the sales office. Uh, so if they if they started off in the sales cabin and then the show home was ready for them to move into the nice uh, new swanky show home to have uh, customers come in and, and, and sell uh, sell the homes in a bit of a nicer environment than a than a cabin, which was all right, but you know that that's that's really where was a key driver to get the salespeople into the show home ASAP. So um, connectivity was a part, you know, a big part of that. But what what, what came uh, as a challenge was uh, if you take two hundred and fifty sites with two 
network locations per site, and you've got um, <clears throat> you've got you know ADSL lines being uh, provisioned and then ceased and reprovided every twelve weeks, mm-hmm. and at a mixture of times that was also uh, you know a very big challenge for us then. So I was a field engineer when all that was kind of kicking off and. We, we tried things like GPRS modems and yeah. things like that to, to try and get connectivity, which wasn't great, but, you know, it worked. You had it to worked. do what you had to do. Yep, yep. That's it. That's it. So, so yeah, that's that's kind of gives an overview so of the... That, that uh, sounds like a great, uh, honestly, I'm gonna, that sounds like a an opportunity for us to do another show just on that design and use case that you have there, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a long time ago now, but it was, uh, you know, it's still a lot of the... Things are a bit better now when, you know, you can think, you can look at uh, LTE, 4G, 5G, etc. The last, so the last five or six years, but, you know, it's still expensive to for a construction company to deploy these things uh, anyway. And then you have to add VPNs on top and it adds complexity and things like that. So, um, so yeah, so the house building, the house building organization was, you know, the bread and butter. Um, they also had the construction uh, the construction uh, division, which that may build like shopping malls and things like that. So, um, and wow. then there was another another division of the yeah. of the organisation <laughs> that was uh, property development. So they would have, um, they they would they would uh, they didn't they, they didn't take part in any of the the actual construction work, but they acquired property and then uh, basically re- leased it to long-term leases to different companies so stuff like you know if you if you have like i know you've got all the big nike uh outlet stores and stuff like that over in the u.s like so they would buy like you know a number of units in a in a location and then they would like uh, you know rent that property out on long-term leases to to nike and things like that and you know you would maybe even have a scenario where they uh owned a shopping mall and then they they looked after the property management, and if they if, if somebody wanted to open a shop within that shopping mall, they dealt with all that side of things. So that's my high level explanation. Sure, there's more to it than that. <laughs> we'll have to definitely do a show on that because to me that sounds really interesting. And I would I would like I mean we kind of dove, dove right into one of your your situ- your experiences in in your career, um, but I want to make sure I let the um, the listeners know something that I learned, and I think you might have learned as well. So. A real quick uh, off topic, um, Malcolm and I studied together um, in a study group for our uh, the Cisco Certified Design Experts. That's actually how Malcolm and I met. And um, in that, that process, there's something that we I learned, and I'm, I'm kind of calling you out a little bit, Malcolm, so I apologize. But um, there's something that I learned is that what what is done in different countries is very different. Um, and you don't, you don't realize that. Maybe it's a, a – sorry, I think of the right word here. Maybe it's – um, an easy assumption for people to make that what is done in the U.S. is done everywhere, or what is done in the U.K. is done everywhere, but that is that is not the case. I think, um, and there's different aspects of designs of IT of networking in in every country. So, sure, very valid point, and and again, not to go off topic, but the one that sticks out in my mind, uh, in particular, uh, that that came to light during that process was the. The WAN management, so uh, like MPLS, yeah. L3 VPN services. So in in the UK and Europe, it's very common for um, a, a telco to provide a fully managed service, and 
you know, anywhere you go in the world, you're never going to get access to the the um, telco or the ISP or the 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 WAN providers PE routers. But um, in the UK, uh, my my interpretation of things throughout that process was that uh, in the US and Canada is pretty standard for organisations uh, and almost alien for this not to happen uh, for most organisations to manage their CE routers themselves. So um, the CE routers that get installed on the customer sites, uh, you know, that's that's the customer. Um, and then you appear with the provider or your BGP session or whatever. In Europe and uh, the UK in particular, which is where I built most of my, the work in my career, um, you know, it's, it's probably more common uh, to, to outsource management of CE routers to a service provider, it's a managed service. Now, now that, you know, there's different ways of doing that. And again, it's probably another completely <laughs> yeah, different yeah, show. Yeah, exactly. Right? But, but yeah, I mean, that. I was over in the US and, you know, I said fully managed service in a, in a, in a, in a room full of uh, people who weren't from Europe or the UK and they looked at me like I was crazy. You know, it was just something that, but it's, it's very common. And that's the one that really sticks out. But yeah, I mean, cult culturally, uh, these these are some of the things that, especially when you're talking about DC stuff, where you're accessing applications in different continents and countries and things like that. There might also be, I've not actually got anything in my notes about this, but there may also be, uh, you know, regulations around where you're allowed to host data. Yeah, so like example, data, data sovereignty. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that was definitely something that, that uh, we had a good few discussions around uh, on on our journey towards the CCDE. So all good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's let's get back uh, to your who you are and your experiences real quick. So, um, you are a subject matter expert for uh, local area networks, uh, wide area networks, security, wireless, data center, and UC. A little bit of UC. I'm not a subject matter expert on UC. I have to, you know, I have to. Uh, uh, UC is the only thing out of that list of things that you read out um, that I've not deployed as an engineer. Everything else, everything else, um, LAN, WAN, security, wireless, DC, uh, you know, mainly the Cisco product stack, the full Cisco product stack, uh, you know, I've deployed before I, I moved into design. So uh, UC, you know, I can talk competently about it at a, a high level design, but, you know, when it, and, and I know the building blocks, but and what the requirements are for a UC system to be delivered. Um, although that is, you know, that is like uh, UC is listed as one thing, but it's probably got as much contained within it as LAN, WAN, security, yeah, wireless, and DC put exactly. together. So yes, you know, that's a real, it's a real uh, art as UC. Um, and uh, having worked closely with some really good UC guys over the years, I, you know, I, I know. <laughs> I know that, and uh, you know I respect that. So, um, no, I'm not. A, I'm not a UCSME. <laughs> to answer your question, <laughs> yeah, I was trying to hit through a little jab at you there, I guess. Um, no worries. And I, you know, I actually didn't get a, a chance to congratulate you um, for passing the CCDE. I know we had kind of started around the same time frame, and um, with the the tests only being allowed once a quarter, roughly, and then some stuff happening between then and now. Um, I just haven't had a chance to congratulate you. So I just want to say congratulations. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. 
And it, uh, you know, I think it was uh, it was the, the first time I actually started collaborating with anyone was when you reached out to me on Twitter. So really, uh, <laughs> so a lot yeah, of it's because that, of me. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's it's all you, man. It's all good. It's all it's you. It's good stuff, though. You know that, uh, that you build a lot of relationships when you're in a group like that. There's a bond that exists, in my opinion, when you're in a group like that and you're studying together. You know, a little different than the CCIEs that some people that are listening will, will know about. But you know, the the DE, it's a it's a it's a long marathon. It's not something you you know you can do overnight. And I know we 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 sat together every Saturday for a year, give or take. Um, and then I'm sure you you went further on and you ran the the study sessions i believe so yeah hats off to you man um but yeah and and just for anybody who do, who doesn't know me i don't actually have a ccie oh exactly i, I, I went, exactly I'm a, oh. I'm a, I'm a bit, I call it what you want it might be crazy it might be a rare breed but you know i went i figured you know i could have done a ccie but um where i was where i was in my thought process at the time was you know look i've been I'm not as hands-on, you know, I used to get involved in escalations and stuff like that at, at the time when I made the decision to uh, pursue the certification and, you know, I was still uh, at certain, you know, a project escalation engineer, but I wasn't doing, you know, the stuff day, day in, day out. And I felt that, you know, having the last five, six, seven, probably seven years or so at the time uh, was mainly focused on high and low level design with where I'd slowly moved away from the, you know, day-to-day hands-on stuff. CCD seemed like the, uh, like the right choice, but, you know, I found out through that, throughout that journey, there was a lot of stuff that, you know, was new to me from a tech perspective, specifically in the service provider side of things. So, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of discussions and labs and, and, uh, you know, work that went into getting getting up to speed on that, despite be having at that time, I think it was in the industry for around thirteen years. So it just, you know, it was a real a real uh, positive thing. It was difficult at times, but I'm, you know, I'm definitely glad that glad that I done it in the end. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a, a um, uh, an extremely hard goal to to set out for. Um, it's a long journey. It's not easy. Um, and, and, um, especially in your situation, you know, not having the background of the CCIE process, um, not saying that it actually is a good thing to have a CCIE. I think that was, I think that was the main battle is, you know, uh, I'll, I'll hold my hands up and say, I underestimated that a little bit at the start thinking, oh, I've done, I've designed all these networks. I'll study for, you know, six or 12 months and I should be all good, but it, a lot of it is mindset, but you know, that, that stuff gets talked about a lot in blogs and different podcasts and things like that so well uh, my my situation i was going to say that i actually think having two ccies hindered me for the ccd because i was going too too down in the weeds on everything um i was overthinking everything so um because of you know that that mindset of going after a ccie i think it's it's mindset like you said it's perspective so um all right so today Malcolm and I are going to discuss um, designing for data center migration and application mobility. And that is a huge topic. Um, And Malcolm has some experiences that we're going to go through and and kind of discuss and things that we should keep in mind when we're migrating from uh, a data center to a data center, a data center to a cloud, applications from one data center to another data center, um, and any, any aspect, both business and technical, within that bubble. Is that a correct kind of summarization, Malcolm? Yeah. That'll do it. All see right. What it takes us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, let's see. Where do we want to start? 
Yeah, so I think I think probably like you know setting the scene. Uh, what is a data center migration? But before we even get into that, you know what what typically drives a data center migration? So, um, or or what like I I made a, like a few a note of a few sort of bullet points that I think no matter what type of data center migration um, you're you're actually going to be doing, and we'll talk about the different types that what uh, the different types of migrations that I feel class as a data center migration in a, in a little moment. But what I feel, you know, before you even get to the stage where you say, right, what, where are we going to put this? What kind of technology are we going to use? We have to really understand five key things. So the first, the first is, you know, it's one bullet point, but again, this could be expanded into another 10 or 15, but understanding the business drivers and constraints so why are why because at the end of the day it's not some guy in IT didn't wake up one day and go uh, right we need to do this data center migration it's always driven by the business mm-hmm. and uh, we're talking about some of the some of the reasons why that might be the case in a little while um, and then also uh, what comes along with that is what are the constraints so uh, normally related to money. Yeah, cost <laughs> and, yep. and how much how how much cost and uh, how how much funds are available, or uh, other constraints could be time, uh, could be limitations with applications and technology, etc. That are already in place. But we'll we'll get onto that. Um, limiting so, limiting like cost though. You're trying to reduce cost too. Maybe you have multiple data centers and you're trying to um, consolidate them. Exactly, exactly. So um, and then even if even if you've got a budget, you're always you, you're always going to have pressure put on from somewhere to try and uh, come in under that budget. So even just because the money's there doesn't say, <laughs> mean to say that, you know, you're always going to get exactly. it. Exactly, yeah. Uh, um, so, be- before we keep going down the list, though, um, let's uh, level set with, and level set's a key word, but let's level set for a couple definitions, I guess, or, or terminology just real yeah. quick. Um, in your own words, what's a data center? So I would say, in my, my own words, uh, a data center is really to keep it simple it's uh it's normally where a, an organization hosts uh their corporate applications and uh their data uh, in order for them to go about their business and transact that was a pretty good definition in my opinion um and then the next one i have is what's an application so so just before we go on to that uh, just just one addition to uh, what is a dc the other thing is dc Again, it depends what what background it could you come from, whether it's enterprise, ISP, co-location, hosting. It could be a data center, could be uh, a server room or a room with some air conditioning in an office, in a big office. That could be a data center. Um, It could be an off-site location, uh, either a cloud provider or a a co-location space, or it could be a mixture of both um, or all of the above. So just wanted to uh, clarify that. So yeah, the next no, one, uh, what is an application? Uh, so an application, an application again, depend, it depends on industry. Uh, there's, there's a load of different things that, that could classify as an application. An application could be, uh, you know, what we talked about a lot in the, in the CCDE studies was, you know, the traditional three-tier model. So that I guess that would be more uh, related to, uh, out of the, the the previous data centers that I was talking about, um, for example, a co-location hosted uh, solution, um, and this, the, uh, that 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 would be like where you have like a web tier 
so the web tier is where uh, effectively the front door to your application. Uh, so if you go on to your favorite browser of choice um, and you browse to the application, salesforce.com, just one that I pulled out my head, what sits behind that web page, which is served to you by a web server or several web servers, um, what sits behind that is the second tier, which is the application tier. So that's the actual application tier. That's the actual application. So if you click on a link on a web page, the, the process that's being executed as a result of that um, is going to be typically executed on the application server. So that's almost like you're sending an instruction from the web page to the application. Um, and typically what you want back from that transaction or process is um, something to happen. Now that might be, uh, you know, the application serves something up visually. It could be uh, that you want some data uh, returned back if you're doing like a search query on a database or a web app or whatever. And if you start getting into that, that's where the third tier normally falls into place, which is uh, uh, the the database tier normally. So uh, SQL, uh, these types of things that I don't really know anything about, but I know that they need layer two DCIs, which uh, <laughs> try I try and avoid all, at all costs. But anyway, uh, no, that's this is perfect. Is that I'm I'm familiar with the three tier, um, and I'm I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with the application three tier model, right? Web app and database with any type of aspects underneath that, um, just uh-huh. the architecture as a whole. Um, outside of that. Outside of that, so you know, an application could be Active Directory. Active Directory is an application for uh, directory services and allowing you to be able to log on to the account, uh, log on to your sort of log on to your network. Um, uh, what else? You know, uh, NAC, a NAC appliance like ICE, which I know that you're no stranger to, Mike. Um, <laughs> that's an application. It might be an appliance or a VM that sits in a data center but it's an application that allows you to, to access the network. Um, other types of applications, so for example, any kind of uh, transactional, well, custom, let's talk customer services business, an application could be um, if you work in a contact center and you need and people are phoning up the contact center about the product and you need to you know, record that information in some way, so again, Sounds like I only know one application, and I've got no shares in Salesforce. But Salesforce would be a great, uh, you know, example of that, where you know somebody phones up. Uh, it could be a sales inquiry. It could be a customer, um, you know, a, a customer service inquiry, um, and and all these things sort of link together. So customer service, people are only going to buy stuff from you if they're receiving a good service. So that links into sales, for example, um, and then. Uh, being a, having the ability to integrate into an email system, which is another application. So hopefully, hopefully, you know that paints a bit of a better. better yeah, no, that's picture, great. That's great. We're definitely giving some great detail, I think, today. Um, so the next um item to consider, or that not consider, right? The next item that are the main reasons why you move data centers. The the other the other. Uh, main things to understand before you actually start the design. So we talked about talked about business drivers and constraints, talked about applications. Uh, also, what I think is important is the WAN topology um, because uh, over the years, 
being involved in various data centre migrations. Uh, and, 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 well, this industry in general, a lot of terms are used interchangeably. So a WAN, what is a WAN? A WAN could be a point-to-point link, it, or it could be multiple point-to-point links in a hub-and-spoke network with private fibre, dark fibre. Could be an MPLSL3 VPN, could be an MPLS, uh, sorry, uh, an MPLSL2 VPN. It could be an overlay network. Mm-hmm. It could be internet-based. You get the picture. The list goes on and on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, and, and, and all of those things are pros and cons, right, around uh, traffic flows, quas, uh, bandwidth that's going to be available based on cost and uh, capacity within a provider network, potentially. So, you know, there's been times where, you know, I, I've been involved in a, a migration and it's been taken for granted that if we go to one of the uh, one of the biggest out of the top five uh, telcos in the UK and ask for a 10 gig uh, link between two data centres, they'll be able to deliver it. And there's been an occasion where, you know, there wasn't enough capacity and they had to upgrade all their kit, which added delay, <laughs> et cetera, yeah. et cetera, into the project. So it's not really WAN topology, but um, how, how the WAN fits together uh, at the moment how uh, it kind of links into the next point that I was going to talk about was traffic flows. So understanding how when you when we go back to the you know the uh, point that we talked about earlier on when you click the button and uh, you want to uh, perform some kind of transaction, IP telephony, UC. I told you I wasn't a UC expert. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. probably one of the main applications that we should have mentioned when we were talking about apps. So voice and video is probably the killer app and. Uh, doing anything these days over the network but um but yeah understanding the WAN topology which leads into like the traffic flows uh, and understanding uh, if I'm a user and I click on a button or I perform some kind of uh, uh, interaction with my computer which will go to the the data center or somewhere else on the network I need to understand how that traffic's going to flow Um, because you have a a load of uh, and that's not always easy to understand especially within the data center um, between different web tiers and external, you know, reporting systems and things like that. So uh, it's not always something that's documented well. So certainly when I do any kind of high-level design and low-level design, uh, I always have like a traffic flows section uh, if I'm able to, uh, well, based on the applications that I know about. Uh, if there's stuff that you just can't get the information for, then you know that's that's life, and you need to deal with it and make the best that you can. But you can certainly you can certainly plan for optimizing it as much as you can based on your understanding as part of like a data center migration. Well, that's where uh, like an and- analytics engine does come in. I mean, again, I'm keeping this vendor agnostic, but on um, the idea that like, you could put an analytics engine to understand what your traffic flows are. In most cases, in my experience, uh, customers don't know the traffic flows. Users don't know the traffic flows. Developers and application owners do not know the traffic flows. So it's, you know, it's a guessing game. Um, there's been cases where I was on site and I'm using Wireshark to see what's going out the port, you know? I mean, that's honestly the sad case of it all, unless you have some analytics engine there to to get you that information. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, and then the last the last thing, so, uh, and I'll recap on these sort of five points at the end, but uh, the last thing is, like, where are we now? You know, because we obviously have, where are we now in regards to the landscape of the network? Because we obviously have an objective to get to a point uh, and a topology and a technical solution. But, how that is actually achieved, you need to understand uh, where are we now, what technology 
uh, do we have in place? You know, uh, and I don't even just mean like um, as old switches that we have in place. Uh, there's a whole uh, again a, a whole due diligence exercise that should be gone. You know, went through, and this all doesn't happen in like a couple of weeks, or it shouldn't. <laughs> You know, like where you get like the oh, we're, we're migrating data centers and you, and it's going to be in like three months. I mean, typically, data center projects, in my experience, take sort of depending on the size from the planning stage. So, having worked as a as a pre sales person and then been you know on probably smaller opportunities like uh, you know with, with core switch replacements and things like that, a core switch replacement from Initial planning and engagement with a customer and talking about the uh, what they're actually looking to do through to delivery can is normally six months minimum. You know what are you wanting to do? That conversation through to you know replacing a couple of core switches and migrating you know your existing distribution layers just to connect into those. That's a six month planning exercise. So when you start moving into uh, you know the project might be. I don't know, 20, 30, 40 days engineering or whatever. Uh, so that's three months, you know, in itself. Um, but then when you start uh, getting into large-scale data center migrations with, uh, I think the first large one that I'd done was like 40 applications, and that was moving from a customer uh, server room, as we described it earlier on, uh, to a co-location hosting server, uh, so, so a co-location uh, data center, uh, which it was going to be a mixture of um don't want to get too much into like the infrastructure server side in this discussion but uh, some of it was uh p2p so physical to physical yep. which effectively lift and shift some of it was p2v and some of it was v2v so p is physical v is virtual so, so some was lift and shift some was physical to virtual some were virtual to virtual and depending on which one of those that plays a part in how you actually uh, plan your network migration uh, network migration strategy for them as well, um, and and that can take you know a lot of planning. No, 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 that's great. I mean, um, some of the and I, I have done a couple huge data center migrations and a couple small ones, um, and and I can recall one taking about six years to complete. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, it it is not something that is traditionally done overnight. It, it's something that you really need to plan accordingly for. Um, and if you don't plan accordingly for, you're going to bring things offline. If that's the application or the infrastructure or both. Um, you really have to have a good plan and be methodical about it. If you're migrating applications, that could be a little different. So um, on that note, though, uh, I think uh, my next question would be is um, you've done this a couple times, a few times, right? Um, mm -hmm. Do you kind of have a, a step process, high-level step process when you migrate a data center or migrate an application from a data center? Yeah, so I think I think it ties into it ties into what we talked about before. I mean, a massive part of it that if I was to expand one of those points out, it would be like the last one that we talked about. So the the five points were the business drivers and constraints, uh, what are the applications in scope, what is the WAN topology, uh, what are the traffic flows, and what's in place now. So what's in place now kind of you know is, is almost like an overarching uh, overarching to like the other things that that we talked about. And and that's that's like a massive uh, that's a massive part of it. So understanding what actually needs to be achieved, um, and not just you know piling in and building, picking like the biggest, fanciest switches that you can uh, or the latest and greatest 
software-defined data center is probably the best example I can think of just now because that pro that might if if you put a software-defined data center in somewhere now for a data center migration where it's actually really a lift and shift with some physical if physical physical to virtual you know it's it's a complete greenfield redesign so understanding you know what the what the actual objectives are uh, you know is it is it is it a lift and shift or moving a data center to another location or is it is it a, a transformation so the, the 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 two terms that i always heard about were transition and transformation so transition would be uh, more or less like for like so whether that was like equivalent stuff in a new location to provide the same functionality uh, or if it was like lifting and shifting existing uh, arc, uh, like uh, infrastructure over to a new location so those are those are uh, that that would be a, like a transition a transformation would be like going from a an existing type of scenario like for example moving to a new data center uh, as part of a transition but at the same time transforming it or standing up the transformed infrastructure, getting some apps across. So uh, in order to actually approach it, the main things I would say are to understand the applications that are in scope. Um, how are we going to get the applications and the data to the new location? Those are those for me are the key things that you you know at the start of your your tech list, and then you have to start looking at right. Well, um, if we need to, for example, move large amounts of data to a new location how are we going to achieve that and then you start getting into things like well do we need uh, do, do we if we're if we're going the virtual machine route do we need layer two connectivity and i know russ white if he listens to this uh, will be uh, rolling in his grave hearing me even talk about layer two dci but the fact of the matter is that you know it's a requirement it's still a requirement you know the apps are still a lot of apps and the vmotion uh, side of VMware, which is a key, uh, you know, a key part of data center migrations, is still a is still required. So when you start looking at uh, layer two uh, requirements and data center interconnect requirements in order to um, shift data from the existing location to the new location, but also like seamlessly move VMs once the data is there. Um, these are the sorts of things and you, and you know that can be achieved in a lot of different ways so uh, those are probably a few requirements and then when you start i mean for, from a data center build perspective if you if you were moving locations from uh, data center a to data center b say it was like an old hosting provider to a new hosting provider you're effectively going to be standing up a data center uh in a new location and you're probably going to get to build it to some extent greenfield and get the network operating and routing and switching so when when you actually it gets tricky is when you actually have to start moving the apps and putting them in production and there's things that people uh, don't always think about uh, in my experience so for example if 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 we can provide routing and switching with either the same with the same IP address, and you know that's that's probably fine. So uh, if you're talking internet-based apps, you've got provider-independent space versus provider-assigned uh, space. Uh, provider-independent space is where 
the uh, the enterprise would have a, a you know a a range allocated from ripe and they own it they advertise it out to the internet via upstream providers but you would also have a scenario which is more common uh, certainly in the smaller enterprises where uh, the telco who provides ISP connectivity or internet connectivity gives you addresses and they are the only <laughs> it's possible to advertise it out of another provider but let's just say it might be more hassle than it's worth so yes. uh, you might get some pushback etc etc and I have, I have technically I have personal experience with that. It's not easy. And yeah, so. and I've had I had providers let me do it um in the past and then they would overwrite the the policy um like monthly or quarterly and you you'd have an issue and you had to figure it out. So um it's not it's not as easy as it might seem from a technology yeah. perspective. So 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 with with both of those scenarios then uh you know there's a couple of things to consider and it goes a little bit above the network layer into the DNS layer. So uh, what you know what I was talking about uh, how 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 do you actually migrate your applications? Um, normally, different applications in different ways. But so if it's if it's keeping the same IP address, so if if the server or application is keeping the same IP address but moving to another location, that's most likely going to be like an app that's accessed internally. So. Pretty much that, that it's very much oversimplifying it because there's a lot of, <laughs> there's quite a lot to think about. But but you know pretty much that comes down to changing routes routes and routing uh, in your routing protocol or your static routes or whatever to get to the new data center because your DNS name is going to probably stay the same. Uh, either that or you stand up some kind of new service with a DNS name and uh, you can cut users over by pushing a policy out via Active Directory or something when they log in the next morning, for example, and, and, and then the, the help desk, as I called it, <laughs> uh, starts ringing every day. But, you know, yes. in, in and then you push terms, it off you, yes. Yeah, yeah, so, so if, it's, if, it's, you know, if it's planned, if it's planned uh, from, a, from a, uh, an IP address keeping the same, uh, keeping the same name, it's normally related to routing changes you know, in my experience. So yeah, yeah. That, I mean, like that, you said, I think, I think you're right. It's routing changes or doing like static routes or whatever, policy-based routing, something along those lines, or it's doing a layer two interconnect between old location and new location and then migrating it over there. You know, again, you said lift and shift, or uh, if you're doing a, a V-motion or, or whatever, you know, you're, you're essentially having a span layer two network. Um, now, what I would say, that's temporary, right? Um, and that I've used that in the past um, because it traditionally is one of the easiest things to do. Um, a lot of the applications that I've migrated personally have hard-coded IP addresses in the code, so which makes it very hard to change IP addresses when you have that discussion with the application team or the developers. Um, so I recommend, and I, I'm sure everyone at this day would probably recommend not to uh, hard-code IP addresses in code. Yeah, exactly. But it's like what you were talking about, though, with some of the some of the uh, customers that you've dealt with in the past. Um, you know, it, it, I think I think it was when we were having a chat offline, and you'd done stuff where you know eight thousand applications and stuff like that, which were legacy and all that. Yep. You know, that that's just it's not feasible to uh, because uh, in my experience, where where applications are hard coded, it's not like 
there's one part of it. It's like throughout the whole, yes. the whole, all of the code in the application references specific different IP addresses rather than DNS names. So, uh, but that's historical, and it, it, you know, it's a way. It, it's very common, uh, and it, it's one of the one of the constraints or challenges that you're always going to face with a, a DC migration. Yeah, so I mean, um, and I have a number of points that I could I could talk about now at this at this juncture here. Um, so I'm going to try to make them quick here. Um, so I'm with with that. I mean, there's things you can do from a, a IP address perspective. I mean, worst case scenarios, you know, you can leave the same subnet in both places, spanning it, whatever spanning tree or whatever. Some other layer two technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you could do uh, natting which I've done as well, doing some sort of NATs for those IP addresses or those subnets. You can do carry grade NAT. Um, and that way you could still do a new subnet and a new location, um, mm-hmm. but then you're NATing to internally to those servers that have the hard-coded IP addresses. And you can start to window down what is actually hard-coded and what's not. Um, so those are the comments to that. Now, my next thing would be something regarding application migrations. I think one of the, the big keys in my mind regarding an application is the criticality level of that application. Mm-hmm. Um, so and maybe that's a big word for some people. And what I mean by criticality level is, um, you know, is that application need to be up 24 seven? Can it, can mm-hmm. it be okay to bring down for 20 minutes or an hour or four hours? Or, mm-hmm. you know, if it has to be up 24 seven, well then that becomes another constraint to migrating that application. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, that, that's something, you know, in, in not necessarily data center migrations, but upgrades, for example, oh, yeah. where I've known any, any kind of upgrade that I've known that there, there's potentially uh, going to be an outage. Um, you know, I, I've always like, as a, as a consultant working for VARs and stuff like that, because that's been predominantly, so if I've done network audits, which have then led to uh, you know, upgrades of any kind of sort that are, you know, in scope for the data center, or it could be, you know, uh, a key application. One was actually a key application that was hosted in AWS, and we were changing um, how they peered to AWS. Now, you know, that, like that, that that was like their, uh, I can't remember what it was, if it was their ERP system or whatever, but it was critical to their business and had to minimize downtime and stuff like that. So, uh, but how how do you how do you change our peering from being static to dynamic or or set up a VPN to two different AWS gateways without interrupting the traffic flow? So uh, as part as part of that process, uh, it was part of a wider consultancy process. But what what I actually done was I put the onus on on the organisation. Uh, so that would be whether I was working within an enterprise. You know, I would I would be looking for someone else within the business because and. It's not. It's not like passing the buck as a network engineer because you, you hear about a lot of that uh, going on between teams. It's not my job, and that's all coming. To, you know, that's all going away. I would suggest in the future with you know net DevOps and all that kind of stuff. So teams are going to have to really work a lot closer together. Uh, but my point is that if you don't know, you don't know what you don't know, right? So if I'm not looking after an application, you can you can get a gauge or a, a gauge based on how loud people shout and uh, how high up somebody is that shouting is in the company hierarchy. But that doesn't always say uh, that's because they're on a VIP in the company and you generally tend to that, but it might be email. However, you know, if there's a sales app down that affects like 
10,000 retail staff and, and if that's down for like 20 minutes and it costs $600,000 a minute, you know, that that's the kind of thing that you really need to understand. And I would say that in most small to medium enterprises, which is where I've spent most of my career from a consultant perspective, I probably ask them to list out uh, all of their applications if possible, but list like the top 10 or top five. But it really just depends on if, if I say to a customer, list out the top 10 and then they go, we've only got, we've got 50 apps, but we only know that we've got three business critical. And I just say, well, can you just prioritize the apps? And if that is the top three apps are high priority and the other 47 are uh, are low, then that's cool. I know I can play, you know, I know where I stand in regards to planning the network migration and to the, you know, to the best of your ability based on what you've got available to you from a tools perspective. I have like a ton of questions, uh, so I don't know where to start here. Um, so in your experience um, with your data center migrations and, and whatnot, um, how have you handled like remote access or remote access VPN or something along those lines? Uh, as in moving it or or do you mean like to, to get access in order to perform the migration? Uh, yeah, that to get access to perform the migration, I guess that's question uh, A, right? Um, or 1A, whatever you want to call it. And then also like migrating it from on-prem to cloud or migrating it from one data center to another data center with maintaining, you know, I'm going to start talking to like, uh, let me take a step back here. So I'm going to start asking some of these pointed questions on technologies I think that are important to data center migrations. I think remote access is one of those main technologies that organizations all use, right? Um, there's a few others too that, that you, you and I have whited out or, or, or um, drafted out in our outline. But, you know, I think remote access is one of those key ones, like a global remote access VPN solution. So, um, and migrating that successfully from on-prem to cloud, um, and then also getting it working so you can do the migration too. Yeah, so, I mean, in my experience, when I've been doing like data center migrations rather than like firewall upgrades, so... So they're quite different. But, I mean, I've been pretty fortunate in, in respect to, well, actually, let me think back. So back in around, I don't know, 2009, one large, uh, uh, you know, national rail company that I was working with, they actually had, um, they had like Nortel VPN concentrators. I can't remember what kind they were, but basically... Uh, that at that time, well, I suppose it's maybe maybe not a great example because two thousand and nine remote access is probably less important than now. But I'll you know I'll talk about it anyway. But that going back to our uh, how do you migrate an application that was actually a lift and shift, um, and it was a lift and shift. The reason that that was lifted and shifted was, um, I was working for a, a hosting company uh, and I was like a network engineer on the the migration team of about six or seven network engineers on a lead. Um, and we all had, you know, different parts. This was like a huge, a huge network, twenty-five thousand users, so huge to me. But you know, the VPN, the two Nortel VPN concentrators serviced the whole organization. So maybe it wasn't twenty-five thousand users that used it, but you know, it was still that's how people got in uh, to to the organization. Uh, I think there was also some uh, third-party VPN concentrators that were that were part of that lift and shift as well. And that was more critical because um, how, how it works 
in in sort of the UK. There's like the National Rail, and then there's like uh, you know I won't say too much about uh, the the ins and outs, but the, you know there's uh, you know there's there's different partnering rail companies that all take feeds and all the rest of it for timetables and all sorts of things at different stations. So different services run on different uh, different train lines in different parts of the UK. But National Rail is the governing body or, or the overarching uh, organisation that they all effectively operate out of. So without VPN connectivity into National Rail, you're talking, uh, you know, how, how, do, how, do, how do you display what time the trains are coming at the station and things like that. So typically, you know, if you're talking like a huge data centre migration, it's, it's normally a process of standing a new service up. And when I say service, uh, I mean a VPN, a, 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 an equivalent. So I'm, I guess I'm talking about uh, site-to-site VPN there. But I'll, you know, we'll talk about remote access VPN in a in a second. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, so, so the site-to-site VPN, it would be a case of get the get the new service in place, provision the VPN, and and then activate the service, define the interest in traffic or whatever to go over the new service rather than the old one, like the new tunnel. So that's really the approach. That would be like a split, right? That'd be like a um, you set a time period, and then you're like, okay, um, I had this tunnel, I'm going to turn it down, and then turn it up on the new. Uh, Pretty firewall, much, right? and 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 depend. And the thing, the thing about that is that um, you have to. It has again that that's like a, a, a again a minuscule part of the overall data center migration, but it's massively critical, and it has to be planned. So if you've got like a hundred real. I've just made these numbers up, but if you know, it's very possible to have like a hundred partner and rail companies, uh, like you know, smaller uh, regional lines and things like that. They all have you know overall arching like national body which they have to uh, feed into in order to operate the the rail line. Um, they they're all different companies, so. If you if you're like you you might be the guy and I might have been even been the guy I can't even remember it was like that long ago and lots a lot of waters went under the bridge since then but you know effectively you know back then what we had is like we had a we would have like a um, an engineer who would tally up with the engineer from rail provider one network guy and say right let's get this tunnel up and then let's move on to the other one. Because it has to be done in a careful, calculated way. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to minimise your your downtime. Mm-hmm. And you know, getting VPNs up between different organisations, where uh, it can it can be tricky. So, yes. so, so, yeah. I mean, standing up, standing up a new platform, a couple of firewalls, a couple of VPN concentrators, and I, you know, I think that um, that I've not actually personally done a lot on like the the remote access vpn from a migration perspective but you know what if if somebody was to ask me how you would do it i would probably say you know do it in the same way i know certainly some global customers that i've worked for um they have like a remote access vpn they have regional data centers for example so that could be drawn up that could draw a parallel to um existing data center and new data center where and the you know I'm, I'm most familiar with Cisco AnyConnect and and the Acers and SSL VPN, but um, you know the the most obvious way to me is to stand up a you know a, a dedicated pair, uh, and if there's an outage if there's an outage on uh, 
or if they are, or if the existing are taken out of service, then there's a DNS entry uh, and, a, and a profile in the in the AnyConnect VPN client for you to either select the other data center from a drop down if you want to uh, access the VPN. Whilst you know there would be communications that went out to the organisation, and that's another thing that we're probably not going to be able to get you know have a lot of time to even touch on. But a lot of this stuff comes down to how do you communicate to the business about what's happening? So if you say the VPN, sir, you've got two options. You can say the VPN, in my opinion, the VPN service is going to be down whilst we move it over the weekend to the new location. And that might be if you had a constraint around buying new kit. Or you or you can communicate to your business and say um, IT upgrades are happening at, between these times and uh, as a result, please select the drop-down list on your VPN client and pick dc2.companyname.com instead of DC1. dc1. Exactly. So, so, so that's really how I would see remote access VPN working at a high level anyway. So are there any other technologies that you want to kind of talk about or any other um, items that would be something that we should... Uh, um, keep in our minds when we're doing a, a a migration that could be maybe these items could be like challenging yeah so i think um one, one of the things uh, that, that i was going to talk about earlier was when we were talking about the um the, you know the ip addressing one of, one of the things i made a note so you 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 covered two of the of the points so one was l2 like stretching the l2 between the the you know the different locations um, this is like to preserve the same IP address uh, or, or the internal applications. Another one was, um, what was the second one? Just deploy a new subnet and advertise it out or? Yeah, so I was saying like doing like, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the, you know, um, spanning tree, uh, layer two DCI, but it's not really a DCI, like it's not a long-term data center interconnect. It's um, yeah, yeah. really short-term just for the migration to go from one space to another space. Um, and traditionally, it's like in, in the same provider's um, data center colo, you know, so. Um, and then the other option was because the limiting factor here is that you have custom, you know, IP addresses or custom code with hard-coded IP addresses. Um, or maybe you have systems that just can't change their IP addresses. There's legacy systems out there that you can't change their IP addresses. Um, so you have to build the system new. And those cases have happened for me. And um, so the other option I did instead of migrating them physically or virtually over to the data center with the same subnet, um, I did like a NAT, like a carrier grade, grade NAT, or I did a static, you know, NAT um, for the hard coded IP addresses that were there in the old location. So, one that I'd act, I've never actually done, uh, but you know, I've been discussing. Uh, I have discussed for uh, had a discussion. I'm not disgusted. I, I had a discussion about was uh, so challenge is a big server subnet. Like let's say for for the purposes of this discussion, a slash twenty three, all servers are on it. Um, the data center is migrating to a new data center, uh, and there's a mixture of applications on that subnet. Uh, we need to some some applications are going to one data center, some app and being reIP'd, and some applications are going to your my data center that I'm working on. Uh, and 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 they need to retain the same IP address. So the way the way, but in the interim, 
like the the existing data center is still operating. So let's say the subnet was ten. Well, let's say it's a slash twenty four. Ten, ten, ten slash twenty four. And then you've got uh, dot one up to two fifty four with different hosts on it, uh, different servers, etc. Um, so, uh, and and we have one application that has two servers that are dot sixty three, and the other one is dot seventy five. So <laughs> that was a discussion that I've had recently. And how do you migrate that? You have to keep the same IP address, and or what's the the most graceful or controlled way to do that? And it sounds okay logically. Uh, where you know you build you, there's no layer 2 DCI between these data centers it's a layer 3 DCI it's a big campus network um, that you know it's MPLS is the one so there's no there's no layer 2 between anywhere here um, so we would a, a way a way that I was thinking that you could possibly do it is create the subnet um, but don't advertise it out to the WAN. and when so let's say I, I can't remember the IP addresses dot 65 and dot seventy two in the middle of the slash twenty four range. When those guys are migrated across, advertise those as host routes out to the rest of the network. So that was a that was another way that you know you could potentially look at. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, if you're doing you know, like a migrating. static route um, and doing a host route. Yeah, exactly, and, and inject it into your you know your your dynamic routing protocol. So you're you know you could you could uh, you could advertise uh, 10 10 10 65 and 10 10 10 72 into bgp uh once once you move that server across to the new location no no that, that i've actually done that too um i actually think that's in one of the scenarios i wrote too for the the our, our study group <laughs> yeah maybe that's maybe that's where i got it from subconsciously then i don't know but it's actually a, actually is a real thing apparently. yeah yeah I mean, i've done it in production um and then i wrote about it in that maggie scenario i think um as a as an option i think it might have been a short-term option was to do static routes because there was overlapping uh routing entries for the different yeah, networks so so, so this would be uh, this would be uh, as opposed to static routes. Yes. And you know, actually doing a network statement in BGP, for example, to advertise to uh, I don't know a thousand sites on the MPLS network, uh, and say network ten 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 sixty five and ten 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 seventy two are here now with a with a slash thirty two mask, whereas. 10, 10, 10 slash 24 still resides in the other place. So you've got more specific routes in the new data center to the host routes. And it's actually a similar concept to Lisp, which uh, I think we're going to talk about today, but I don't think we're going to have time on this. So we maybe have a, a follow-up uh, session on on some of that stuff. It would be pretty pretty cool if you're up for it yeah yeah totally i think i think that makes sense um this can be a part one and then we can have a part two we can go over the the solution that you're mentioning that has lisp i think it has otb as well possibly yeah. so, so so that was that was that was one thing mike and then the other the other sort of key consideration so that was talking about like more internal apps and internal networking resources um the other thing that that uh, to to maybe think about is um like the e-commerce type scenario. So you basically need, typically need to get to a web server or web service, uh, depending on your scenario. So the thing, the thing, the challenges that uh, that come up there are, if, for example, you've got the provider, if you've got provider-independent space, then, uh, you know, it becomes like a routing thing. And uh, again, like even to the internet. So if your provider-independent space resides in one data center, 
And then um, I suppose as long as you're you're moving the whole block across to the new data center, you can then start advertising that out to the internet. Um, you you can't really get as granular in regards to what what you advertise out to the internet as you can obviously within your own network. Um, so if it's a full block, but if if you're changing the IP address for web facing or internet facing services, it really comes down to DNS. Um, and then if you know if you're if you have multiple data centers, uh, you can you can look at things like uh, DNS load balancers in order to provide that functionality. Um, so uh, yeah, the thing with DNS is there's you know that all this uh, historical chat about DNS takes 24 hours to propagate a change, but in my experience, it normally doesn't. Same it's here. normally up to like a couple hours, but uh, it may not fully propagate throughout the whole internet uh, when you migrate the service by changing. Uh, sorry, and just to back up here for anyone who's not familiar with uh, what I'm actually talking about, um, if you have uh, a service that's advertised out of your existing data center on the on to the uh, to the internet, and then um, you want to move that service to be hosted out of a different data center on a different IP address, um, you obviously have to associate that IP address with a DNS record. And once you associate it with a DNS record, I'm not a DNS expert, but you can basically um, change the DNS host file to prefer one data center over another, or you can actually load balance and do some clever things like Anycast and stuff as well. Which is what um, you know a lot of the content providers do, and the, most of the people listening to this podcast probably know anyway. But uh, <laughs> well, the, like, you know the the eight 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 Google address is a good example. And exactly, all the, that's a perfect example. Because if you ping that address and you're in the UK where you are, and I ping it here in the US, we're going to have different TTLs. Uh, not, uh, you're going to have different responses, um, and yeah. they're going to actually be pretty good in both locations. And that's because they're hosting 8.8.8.8 in multiple places in the world. Yeah. And they're routing for it in multiple places in the world. Um, Which ties to Google.com. So that's that's slightly different to uh, what I was talking about initially, but you know, it's kind of related to the same stuff. Like, you know, I guess my point is like when you're migrating internet facing services, there's, you know, there's, there's a load of different ways and there's a load of different technologies that you can either, uh, gracefully, um, phase a serve, a service in that's moved to a different data center by using some of these clever things like Anycast, or you can do like a cutover, for example, uh, prefer, set the DNS zone file to prefer data center B now instead of data center A and then wait for, uh, you know, the TTL propagation to, to pass through. But as I say, my, my experience is, you know, I've probably been involved in two or three data center migrations that I've had quite a lot. Of, uh, the first one that I was involved in had like 40 apps and most of them were web-based uh, and we done like 15 we, I think we split them into blocks at like 10 or 15 waves. So the first wave was like 15 apps. They were all web-facing, uh, and it was done over a weekend. And, you know, by the same day, I don't remember exactly how long it took, but the same day, you know, the, the services were up when we had moved yep. to the other migration. So um, maybe, maybe not in Asia, like to the UK, but, uh, <laughs> you know, my point... 
my point, uh, my point being, like, it might not fully propagate from the UK to all the different continents. It's going to uh, take time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to wait for the TTL. Yeah. And and it depends on, I suppose, local settings within yeah. different providers and stuff like that. But yeah, so we, in my my uh, experience, we've always set the DNS TTL for those records to five minutes, um, or the lowest setting that uh, the DNS provider will let us do. Whatever, if it's yourself doing it, or if it's um, you're using a third third party provider that's doing public DNS for you. There's a few. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them out there actually nowadays, I believe. Um, but then you know you can set those settings all you want, um, but it doesn't doesn't mean that the DNS servers that are out there are going to listen to your settings. Um, they might listen to their own settings, so you might have a five minute TTL on your DNS record. Maybe it's your critical application, and then mm-hmm. you know you might and it might go ahead and work on your server and maybe your DNS provider server, um, and maybe a few others out there in the world. But then when it hits to this, you know maybe a critical. A service provider server um, and they don't want to uh, listen to your TTL. So their TTL might be two hours or eight hours, um, mm-hmm. and not five minutes. And now you have to wait till that, that time's out. And just just one interesting thing that this was like a, a really good trick of the trade. I don't know if you've ever used it, but you know, when, when I was doing that, that uh, first sort of data center migration, uh, which is where I really started my, my, my in-depth networking experience was in the data center, uh, when I left the construction company, um, we we used to what we used to do is stand up the services at, back in back at that time, um, you know, it, or the the nature of the work that we were doing, it was like cut over services because it was, um, like, you know, co-location provider one was where all the services were now, but they were moving over to our service. So what we had to do is like uh, we had to advertise our. Uh, our our prefix as in our pi space as a provider on behalf of the customer so the customer would get like a, a slash 24 for their services or whatever we would advertise it out to to the internet and we'd associate you know the different dns records because we provided a dns service as well um, and we prepped all that up so uh, it was uh, from a dns perspective the server and the and the D, and the new DNS or the DNS name was was advertised from our data center, but the, the, what I was talking about where you manipulate the DNS zone file to make one preferred over the other that hadn't been kicked in that hadn't kicked in. So what you can do is go to a, a so so effectively it's this this term authoritative DNS server. Uh, the the other co-location provider was the authoritative DNS provider for the service. And in order for us to take the service over, we would change our DNS load balancers and uh, zone files and all the rest of it to be the authoritative DNS server on the internet for that service. And the way that we could test that is set it all up, but with a lower priority. And there's a, there was a site called cloth.net. So okay. uh, that's K-L-O-T-H.net. Pretty sure it's still going. Um and what we could do is, in order to get a DNS resolution, is you can go onto the site and do effectively an NS lookup through an easy web page, where you put um, the de- the the you, you you would put like in like so say like uh, it's www.malcolmswebsite.com uh, was the service that we were uh, migrating across. I would go to cloth.net, put www.malcolmswebsite.com. Uh, and into the into the domain box, but there was another box underneath it that you could say authoritative DNS server, and we would set that to ours. 
So you could test. Uh, so, so you can still test the DNS yep. resolution. So that's how you could test the DNS resolution on the internet, but it wasn't live. And then obviously if you can just access that web page internally and the content is displaying as you expect, so you could test that part internally via Microsoft IIS servers or whatever it is they were using. Um, and then the other the other component to that is uh, allowing access in on port 80, 443 uh, or whatever in through the firewall to that service. Um, there's other things that could potentially sit in the way like reverse proxies and SSL offloads and load balancers and things like that. But at, at the sort of the basic, the DNS layer, uh, again, like I used to love all that stuff, like the, the load balancing and all that. It was really fascinating, like the stuff that you could do with it. But again... Maybe maybe a conversation for another day. Yes, yes, exactly. We'll do a part two um, for this. Um, so uh, I, I think that's a good stopping point for part one. Um, and and I, I actually, before we uh, start finishing up today's episode, um, let's do the term of, of the show. Term of the show. Uh, we started doing this a few episodes ago. Um, uh, and uh, today's term, uh, do you want to go ahead and say what it is? Yeah, I think I think probably one that leads into uh, is pretty pretty prominent in data center migrations, and whether it's right or wrong, as <laughs> uh, a data center interconnect. Some people so, have strong feelings about that, while yeah. others are a little bit less uh, strong. Yeah. It's a fact of life. It's like marmite, as we say over in the UK. Yeah, you love it or hate it. But more <laughs> exactly. people more people hate it than love it. So, apart from VMware administrators, they love it. So, yeah, yeah. So what is it? So a data center interconnect, it's actually not necessarily a layer two link, uh, but it's effectively, if you, we talked earlier in the show around, um, you know, getting data from point A to point B, uh, as in data center A to data center B in order, you know, because that's the, uh, effectively the back end content that you're going to be serving to your users. <clears throat> so you want to be able to serve that from your new data center. So a data center interconnect, uh, it has a couple of uses, use cases. So for data center migrations, uh, it can operate at layer two, so stretched VLANs between data centers. I'm sure if you don't know what a DCI data center interconnect is, you know what a layer two LAN extension is between data centers because that's how it's otherly, otherwise <laughs> referred to. Uh, and it's normally in the data center migration side of things, it's for stuff like... Uh, you know, if you if you've got um, a ten gig link or between two data centers or a forty gig link between two data centers, you can um, you you can uh, move your data across. So that's typically what it's used for, and uh, and it can be and just just to sort of expand on it a little bit further. Um, it can be delivered natively at layer two. So like you could get like a, have a dark fiber or you could have a layer two service like a pseudo wire or a, uh, you know, an actual physical circuit between two locations uh, and then just configure it as a layer two trunk link with tagged VLANs on it. Um, that, that, allows you, that allows you to stretch your VLANs between different sites and it's actually the least preferred way of doing it. <laughs> uh, broadcast. Uh, all we really need to say is a broadcast in one data center could potentially cripple your other data center and don't really need to say any more than that. Um, all that bomb traffic, that broadcast, unicast, multicast traffic. Yep. Absolutely. So there's no, there's no, uh, 
there's no kind of policing, not in the cause sense. I just mean like as in there's no way to stop those those broadcasts, etc., going between the two locations, and that's obviously um, not desirable, especially in a data center and business critical environments. Um, so there's another there's other ways that you can deliver layer two and overlay uh, technology such as like OTV, which is Cisco's proprietary. I think some of the other vendors have equivalent technologies, but that, that's a bit better from the perspective that um, it, 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 um, what is it? I can't remember. There's basically broadcast containment. I can't remember the exact term offhand. I don't know if you can, Mike, but the, 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 uh, it can, it, basically if you have a broadcast on your data center LAN, um, it will not go past like the the OTV uh, router or switch, which is over the layer two link to the other data center. So it, it will contain the broadcast to uh, as default behavior. Um, that said, that's good from that perspective, but it does introduce other challenges um, from traffic flow perspective if there's stateful devices in the mix. Um, so maybe we can tie that into the you know the future conversation as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, I, I, and I didn't mean to step on you there. Hopefully, that was okay sure. to, jump, to jump in. Um, I think your definition of DCI is is one hundred percent right on. Um, data center inter- interconnect. Um, I don't think I can add anything to that. I think you had it. Uh, from my perspective, I would just make one comment that um, that I, w- I would highlight what you said, that it's not always a layer two connection. Um, yeah, there yeah. are reasons to make it a layer three. Um, you might you might want to use your data center to route through them for whatever reason, and it's not necessarily spanning um, layer two traffic oh, or VLANs. So, but yeah, that was right on. A use case that I've actually worked on for that is um, a, a 10 gig, a 10 gig routed link between two data centers and then an, a single MPLS link between, uh, sorry, and from each data center, and that was actually uh, so. So a lot of that traffic in that particular scenario, the destination was always the data centers from the WAN, mm-hmm. um, and what the the customer wanted to do in that particular scenario is have res- redundancy, but they were happy uh, because of the cost. They had a an, an international MPLS network, so you know. It wasn't it wasn't uh, inexpensive, so they wanted to uh, they wanted to minimise costs. And what they done is they had I think they had dark fibre or they had a some kind of like service that was a lot cheaper. So if uh, you have a single MPLS link in from each data centre, so the production in the DR, but if one of the links fails, they were happy for it just to come in the DR data centre and route across the DCI uh, at layer three. Exactly. So, so that I've actually seen that in uh, as a as a preferred option instead of just having like two MPLS WAN links. Um, and the third, the third sort of just to go back to the layer two, the other use case for that is once the data center migration is complete, um, synchronization between uh, like databases and stuff like that normally relies on layer two, but it's normally uh, a layer two. Uh, use the term back-end VLAN, so it doesn't go anywhere other than between the two sites. So there's never really, a, in that scenario, there's never really a risk of taking the, really, the, a risk of taking the data centers down if things are configured properly from a, you know, a broadcast and storm control perspective. 
It's just it's just you're spanning that VLAN. That's it. So that that broadcast domain is is spanned between two data centers. So if anything happened on that broadcast domain, it could affect the systems on that that VLAN. But that's it. And I've had yeah. those too, where you're, you're spanning one VLAN. It's not even routed. Like you don't even advertise it in routing. Um, some you can, but you don't need to, right? So mm-hmm. you just have it there, and then yep. the just systems can the back end. exactly. Nice. Yep. Yep. Well, Malcolm, um, this was a pretty great show, show in my opinion. I think we, we talked about a lot. Um, do you kind of uh, have anything left that you want to kind of say in this show? No, I think I'm, I'm good. Hopefully it was uh, helpful um, and interesting to people. And uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, anytime. And again, we'll have another one soon. Um, can you just go ahead and give us a, um, how the, the listeners can can reach you, can follow you? Um, I think you have a website and you're on, I think, LinkedIn and Twitter. Yeah, so I've got a blog, so Round Trip Technology, which is roundt.tech. Uh, not been as active since my CCDE attempt. Uh, of course, uh, I mean, you, you were, and, 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 you were and busy August, studying, but, so yeah. But but now that's now that's out of the way, and uh, CCDE is is done. Um, I'm hoping to blog more throughout 2018. So that again, that's Round T. Tech, right? I'll have that in the show notes, guys. I'll have I'll have his site in the show notes so you can go to it, um, and I'll, I'll I'll tweet it out too so everyone can go to his site. Twitter at Malcolm Budin and LinkedIn. You can search. Search for your name, Malcolm Budin. Awesome. Um, you're a big soccer fan, right? I am. What's I your am. favorite team? So I support a team that probably a lot of people haven't heard of, which is Hearts or Heart of Midlothian. Wow. So. that's awesome so i follow um and this is off topic of course but i follow soccer pretty heavily i'm a big soccer fan both uh, u.s and overseas um i've heard of the team i have not watched one of their games before so yeah so yeah i'm a lifelong lifelong fan yeah yeah it's awesome well malcolm i appreciate you joining me today it's been a great episode um uh, appreciate your time um and i and I can't wait for our next episode to continue this discussion. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. All good. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. Cheers, man. Well, that was part one of our discussion. Um, Hopefully you enjoyed it. I would like to say, Malcolm, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come chat with us. Um, It was was really a great conversation we had. I enjoyed it a lot. If you haven't taken a look at Malcolm's content yet, I would highly recommend you do so. Um, both selfishly and not selfishly. Um, He really is building some great network design focused content. That's uh, blogs, vlogs, and audio content. Uh, And it's really going to help this community. So if you're focused around network design, um, if you're learning, you're just new in the, in the field, by all means, go to his content. He's got some good stuff. Um, it really, it's amazing. Um, his, uh, he calls it round trip technology and it, it can be found at round t.tech uh and the link will be in the show notes as everything else uh of course you can follow malcolm on twitter and linkedin and all the social media things his twitter handle is malcolm budin no spaces that's m-a-l-c-o-l-m-b-o-o-d-e-n thanks for listening as usual if you want to add a comment you can find the show notes at zigbits.tech slash 25 remember we're on episode 25 if you liked uh, today's discussion, what we kind of discussed and what we went over, let us know via social media. We're on uh, obviously Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Uh, you can always search for Zigbits or you can go to zigbits.tech to find us. Um, and and hopefully we'll be back to our regular schedule in, in a couple weeks so that uh, you know we get these bi-weekly episodes out there. Until then, bye for now.